Welcome to Cultural Controversy with Shannon Fisher, where we tackle everything from the fabulous to the forbidden. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cultural Controversy. This is your host, Shannon Fisher. And today we are talking about what my guest calls the dark state. Intelligence gathering and historical records fascinate all of us who aren't necessarily privy to state secrets and the things that are working in the shadows. But another fascinating aspect of these secrets is how they are kept under wraps and how and even if they are ever revealed. And so my guest has undertaken an academic approach to cataloging just that. He's a professor of global history at Columbia University. Matthew Connolly is the principal investigator at History Lab, and he's trying to create data-managed solutions to understanding how and why the United States government conceals and reveals information about all the things that move in the dark. And so he has written a book entitled The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets, and he's here today to talk about it. Matthew Connolly, welcome. Thank you, Shannon. Good to be with you. So in America, we kind of pride ourselves on open government. Uh, And you say that you believe that the secrecy has gotten out of control. And so one of the reasons you wanted to undertake this project was to prevent the deletion or destruction of information unmasked because you, you feared that accountability would fly out the window if some of these historical records were to be destroyed. So what is the significance of this kind of retroactive accountability? Yeah, well, you know, if you think about it, when you consider, you know, how it is our government, you know, every year creates tens of millions of new secrets. Um, When you think about, you know, our 18 different intelligence agencies, our $800 billion Pentagon and so on, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, at what point uh, will we actually know, you know, what government officials do in our name? Sure. Uh, Especially when they they cover all they do, you know, under the cloak of, of secrecy. And so, you know, I think most people, and this would include most historians like me, you think that, you know, someday, certainly, you know, we'll be able to look back and render an account. But what I found, you know, in doing this research is that, sadly, that's just not true. You know, there's more and more of these secrets that no one will ever get to see, simply because, you know, so many of these records are now being deleted or destroyed. And so, you know, my, my argument here is that, you know, if you know, our leaders are not accountable, even in the court of history, then ultimately, you know, who are they accountable to? Absolutely. And you, you created History Lab with a grant with the intention of, you know, data mining declassified documents and analyzing what things are likely to be redacted and ultimately figuring out patterns of what is being redacted uh, and, and kind of how long it takes for certain things to become declassified. And so this project ultimately became known as the Declassification Engine, uh, thus the title of your book. Uh, and, and in the preface of the book, you tell the story of your proposal for doing this work being heavily examined to determine whether this undertaking could be prosecuted under the Espionage Act. So did that kind of scrutiny deter you at all from wanting to pursue this project? Well, you know, I I have to say I was taken aback. Uh, You know, as a history professor, (laughs) you don't often, you know, have to talk to national security lawyers. You know, we tend not to have a lot of meetings, you know, with people, you know. (laughs) Like in this case, it was the former general counsel of the National Security Agency, uh, the head of major crimes for the Southern District, or at least these were their former roles. At this point, they were hired, you know, by a foundation, 
um, they sought outside counsel because they wanted advice about what to them, you know, was at least the possibility that they would be funding a project that could ultimately get us prosecuted. <laughs> and so, sure. yeah, so, the, you know, it, <laughs> It, it, uh, you know, was something like I was taken aback, you know, and, and certainly some of the people I was hoping to recruit to the project were deterred. Uh, you know, in some cases, you know, one data scientist, for example, you know, felt that if he did participate in this project, uh, he would have his visa revoked, right, and might have to leave the country. So, you know, sadly, uh, you know, just the, the threat, you know, of legal jeopardy, you know, does scare people off. Um, in this case, you know, I, after getting, you know, advice from Columbia's lawyer, Columbia also hired a, a very experienced attorney in this area. You know, I thought it was, it was a bit far-fetched, you know, to think that, that we would get prosecuted, certainly for, for the things we were actually planning to do. Right. Um, now, having said that, you know, the, the foundation where we were trying to get this grant, uh, they were deterred. Like they ultimately set conditions like non-disclosure agreements and so on that would have really been made it impossible to pursue this project. And the only reason it survived, the reason why we're able to talk about it now, uh, is because the MacArthur Foundation stepped in um, and, and they decided it was worth taking this risk. That is uh, uh, that that is amazing. And I mean, the Espionage Act, it was it was founded in 1917 as a, a matter of national security during wartime um, and with with serious threats to national security. Um, but but I guess they're looking at anything as a potential threat to national security. Development of weapons of war, uh, keeping all of those weapons and their development secret. Obviously, that was imperative to keep quiet. And, and a quote from the book that really struck me was, the dark state rose out of the smoke of Pearl Harbor. Um, and, and so foreign policy and diplomacy um, isn't as much a factor in the history of modern America as military action, at least that we know about. So you say that there's a lot that we don't know and, and records about diplomacy really aren't quite as forthcoming. So uh, why are they important and why are they not as well known as, say, our war histories? Yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, just the diplomacy in many cases we don't get to, to know about. I mean, more recently, um, you know, it was disclosed how Immigration and Customs Enforcement was planning to delete huge numbers of records. You know, for instance, like everything related to human rights complaints of, of detainees. Um, also, the you know the State Department. Uh, it wasn't just about like international negotiations and agreements. They were also planning to delete all the materials you know related to you know things like uh, enforcing um, American sanctions, right, and and fighting corruption. And so, you know, unfortunately, this is a story that continues right up to the present day, and it involves, you know, large parts of our government, um, you know, the Pentagon, of course, the 18 different intelligence agencies. But, you know, there are many departments and agencies now that have people, you know, working in secrecy. And just to give you one example, um, you know, back in, in 2012, the government issued an estimate, you know, as to how many times people in government were classifying information and the number was 93 million times a year. You know, Amazing. So, yeah, three times every second, someone in government decides that what they're doing has to be kept secret from the American public. You know, and typically it takes decades, you know, before that information ever comes to light, if it ever comes to light. Right, right. 
And, and, and you, you say that you, you want this project to demonstrate what needs to be changed in, in government secrecy and in protecting information. And one of the revelations, uh, you say one of the largest revelations from the Edward Snowden intelligence fallout was a spreadsheet that shows in 2013, the United States was spending nearly $50 million per year simply studying the amount of classified information that's being kept under wraps and how to handle it. And so you say that the National Archives simply cannot keep up with the number of documents they need to manage to keep a, a running history of the workings of the United States government. And so what are some of your suggestions for how we can how we can continue to manage this? Yeah, so, you know, you're, you're right. I mean, to me, it was just staggering. Um, the National Security Agency, they're just drowning in data. Like they, they collect so much, you know, data from all over the world that they themselves like lack the capacity to manage and, and analyze all this information they're they're collecting. So you could just imagine, you know, what that's going to mean ultimately, you know, for our ability, right, to, to know what the NSA and these other agencies have been doing. Mm -hmm. So the National Archives, you know, has a tiny budget. I mean, compared, you know, for example, you know, to what we spend on the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies, to give you an example, the Pentagon spends more money on military bans uh, than the government spends on the National Archives, right? So, you know, <laughs> just think about what that says about our priorities as a country. This is the part of our government that has the the awesome responsibility to decide, you know, what is it that's that's happening, you know, that we have to preserve, right, and, and protect so that future generations can learn the lessons of history. Or, you know, everyday citizens, if they want to learn something about, you know, their ancestors, right, or service members, um, you know, if they want to make sure that they have the benefits that they're entitled to, you know, all these things depend on on keeping an account, right, of, of the inner workings of, of our government. And so the first thing that has to happen clearly is we have to begin to devote the resources uh, appropriate to the, the importance of that mission. And for the last 20 years, and I'm sorry to say this is true both during Democratic and Republican administrations, the National Archives budget you know, it's been basically flat when it hasn't actually been declining. And so, you know, the, the budget for the National Archives is the same as it was, you know, more than 20 years ago. And in the meantime, you know, they've collected like tens of billions of electronic records. They've started multiple new presidential libraries. You know, their mission like keeps growing, right? If you think about the amount of information being generated every day, that's true too of the amount of government information and classified information. And they, yet and still, they have fewer people working at the National Archives than were working there during the Reagan administration, right? So, so you know, the first thing we have to do, it's a little bit like what Joe Biden says, you know, when somebody tells you what they prioritize, don't believe what they say, look at how they spend their money. So if we really care about these things, if we want to hold our government to account and preserve our history, the first thing we have to do is provide the amount of the sums of money necessary, you know, to, to fund that, that enormous mission. Now, the other thing, though, is, is we need to get Congress to do more than just appropriate, you know, the, the sums that we need. We also need them to begin looking at some of the laws on the books and things like, for example, the Espionage Act. You know, the Espionage Act, you know, as you said, Shannon, this is more than 100 years old now. It was passed in wartime. And if you actually read the black letter text, you'd be amazed, you know, at what it is, at least technically, that's illegal in this country. You know, so, for example, like if I sent you a, a document 
you know, that may have been leaked. Like, let's say it was something from WikiLeaks. If I share that information with you, <laughs> and it could be construed, you know, as something that could in some way, you know, serve the interests of some foreign state, you and I, you know, could both be prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Oh, no. And, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, you know, th this incredibly, you know, uh, capacious um, law that really, you know, s serves as a weapon, right, that the government can and does use, you know, to intimidate people uh, when when they're trying to, you know, keep their secrets. So I'll just give you one other example. You know, whatever you think of, of Julian Assange, uh, the, the fact that he's been indicted under the Espionage Act for sharing, you know, leaked documents, that is something I think all of us should be deeply worried about. Because if he is brought to trial and he is convicted, you know, for that crime, supposedly, then conceivably there are many more people, you know, many journalists, for example, many historians who could also get prosecuted under the Espionage Act merely for, for looking at and, and sharing leaked documents. Absolutely. When when you were not the person who was in charge of maintaining the security of that document. I mean, I think that is that's an important distinction to make is are you the person who leaks the document from your sworn to secrecy classified job or are you the person who has access to it? And what do you do with that? And I, that seems to be something that that really isn't settled. And I think you're right. We do need to have some sort of legal answer to that. And the digital age has really brought about its own set of challenges because there are more ways to keep clandestine activity secrets. There are more ways to surveil and intercept communication. And, and the recording of all of it is, is a big mess. And the amount of digital data that, that we're looking at keeping, how in the world can we keep records on all of the classified and declassified digital information and metadata that is being collected? Well, we can. I mean, the short answer is it's just not possible. You know, and we have uh, from our own government, we have estimates as to like what it would take, right? If they actually did review all of these, you know, born digital records to decide what the public is allowed to know. And, you know, going back 10 years ago, um, one of these government bodies, they, they issued an estimate and they said it would require hiring 2 million archivists <laughs> to... <laughs> Just to review the records of one intelligence agency, because that intelligence agency, which they didn't name, but they said that they were producing a petabyte of classified data uh, every 18 months. Right. So so that gives you an idea of the, the sheer scale. Insane. Um, yeah. A couple of other examples. And again, this is from our government. The government has estimated that it will take 250 years to go through the backlog of records that have accumulated at presidential libraries, even if there were no more American presidents, even if there was never again, you know, a presidential administration, just working through the backlog they're already dealing with would take literally centuries, right? So right. just see what that means, you know, if you want to know, for example, like what was Donald Trump, you know, saying to Vladimir Putin in that infamous meeting of theirs, right? You know, what kind of, you know, negotiations and deals were struck, right, with Russia, with China, et cetera, during the Trump years, or what's happening right now with regards to uh, America's potential involvement in the war in Ukraine. Do we really, you know, plan to wait 250 years even to find out, you know, basic facts about what government officials, what our elected leaders are doing in our name? If, if you find that unacceptable, then you got to do something about it. And the only people really who can do something right now are members of Congress and the Senate. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and and even even beyond wartime, I mean, you, you talk about secret science being a large part of the 
classified information that's being kept from the public. And the release of, of this kind of information is often very strategic. I mean, not surprisingly, nuclear secrets are kept close to the chest, you know, category three weapons designs and storage and inventory and production and capability. But you talk in the book about how UFO information is not only revealed, but embellished and weaponized to sway public opinion. So tell me a little bit about that aspect. Yeah, well, this was, you know, an experiment. Actually, we, we didn't do it in the history lab. A really talented uh, data scientist at Microsoft Research, uh, Hannah Wallach, did this uh, study. And what she did was uh, she used a technique called topic modeling that clusters documents that are about the same topics. And she compared, you know, how long it takes before documents about this or that, you know, subject, whether it's about nuclear weapons or about UFOs, how long does it on average take, you know, before a document eventually gets declassified. And what she found was a little bit surprising. She found that uh, if uh, records relate to nuclear weapons, it takes more than half a century, 57 years on average before those documents ever see the light of day. When it's about unidentified flying objects, 14 years, right? <laughs> so, so that's not what most people think. Like we right? think, yeah, most of us, I think, uh, we think, oh, surely, you know, the stuff out in Roswell, right? Whatever they're covering up, you know, in the desert, Everything else, you know, related to these unidentified aerial phenomena, surely these are the most closely guarded secrets of all. But it's just not true. And when you think about it, it's not actually that surprising because, you know, if, for example, you just watch a lot of Hollywood movies, you might think that, you know, the government, they don't tell us things because they don't want us to panic, right? But if you look at history, you find examples over and over again of how government officials have exaggerated, you know, foreign threats in order to drum up more support for military appropriations, right? So just think about, you know, the so-called bomber gap in the 1950s, the missile gap in the 60s when the Soviets supposedly deployed more nuclear weapons than we did. Or think about the Iraqi WMDs, right, leading up to the invasion of Iraq. So, you know, I often say, if you think of it, you know, if the Air Force really did have conclusive proof, you know, that we're facing an alien threat, why wouldn't they tell us? Right. <laughs> like they would absolutely tell us because you know what better way you know to drum up more support for military spending? Absolutely, and and the military seems to have a a lot more power than is laid out in civics textbooks. The the distribution of power in the United States government um, is not what a sixth grader is going to learn in a in a social studies class. President actually has the code to access the football for a nuclear strike, but it is the generals who have the actual codes to launch the weapons. Um, there's private enterprise popping up in the military industrial complex. And, uh, and you quote John F. Kennedy as having said that his first advice to his successor would be, watch out for the generals. And so yeah. how is that military power, knowledge, and intelligence how is that kept in check when it is kept in secret? Oh, that that's a great question, Shannon. And, you know, the short answer is it isn't. You know, I mean, this is another way, you know, that this pervasive secrecy can be so corrosive because it, it turns out like even our elected leaders in some cases, you know, don't have full knowledge or control of all the things that happen within our government. So, you know, just to take an example, like if you look at the, the records dating back to the Carter administration, they couldn't even, you know, figure out like how many 
different special access programs, so-called there were in the government, how many of these so-called compartments there were, where only people who had a so-called need to know were allowed to know what was happening inside of them. You know, the presidents like, and this is true, even during the Truman administration, Truman himself talked about how, you know, the public has a misconception as to what presidents can actually do. He said, you know, people like me, we come and go, you know, we're gone after four years or eight years and people within the government, especially within the military, they look at these elected leaders as a nuisance, right? <laughs> Who interfere, right? And in, in right. matters of national security without understanding, right? All the, the full gravity and the seriousness and the complexity of it. And so time and again, you know, I have a whole chapter about uh, what I call the dirty secret of civil military relations. And that is the fact that, you know, our elected leaders, unfortunately, in many cases, don't actually command the military. Um, in many cases, they have to convince or even cajole uh, military leaders uh, to do, you know, what they were elected to do. And so are these elected leaders were, were put in office to achieve for the American people. And so that's something I think if you get deep into the history, it's pretty shocking, actually, how many times and, and how in, in very important ways, in ways that we're all still paying for, you know, the Pentagon has been able to thwart the will of our democratically elected leaders. That is mind boggling, I'm certain to some listeners. Yeah. Um, and, and yet, despite all of this, you say we're actually terrible at actually keeping secrets. You say in the book that most secret intelligence is not very secret and most of what remains secret is not very intelligent. And you, you also mentioned that what ultimately brings down efforts to maintain secrecy is the rot of incompetence. So is, is human error kind of the basis of, uh, of what is ultimately causing destruction? It's in many cases, it's it's about, like you said, Shannon, it's incompetence, right? Officials who have the power to conceal what they do, of course, they're going to conceal the things, you know, that that are embarrassing, right? That they fear would discredit, you know, everything they're doing. And so, you know, you're right. I mean, time and again, you can find examples of officials, you know, concealing things that are public knowledge, right? Just because they want to avoid, you know, say a diplomatic incident. And it's not just me. I mean, time and again, you have presidents, you know, complaining about how, you know, when they're given these presidents daily briefs, right, where they're supposed to get, you know, top secret intelligence from all across the federal government, they often find that what they're reading is something that was reported in the newspapers two days earlier, right? So time and again, you find whether it's, you know, Richard Nixon, you know, George W. Bush, you know, when they finally do become privy to these top secrets, what they're often, you know, their first reaction is, is really, is that all there is? <laughs> so now it, it's, I don't want to exaggerate because like there really are things, and, and I try to give examples in my book, there are things that are that are pretty shocking and pretty amazing in some cases um, that have been concealed as secret. Um, but, you know, these are really the exceptions. And, you know, what you find when you talk with professionals in the intelligence community or people, you know, who are appointed to these positions, um, especially people who didn't necessarily spend their careers in Washington, what they'll come away and tell you is that really there are very few secrets that actually remain secret. Um, and in many cases, like what remains secret are the details of operations, right? Not the operations themselves. And one reason for that is because, you know, especially the senior officials so often leak information, right? They're constantly leaking information in order to tell the story they want told. You know, and that way, using the news media to put across, you know, the story they'd like told about what they're doing within government. Right. Right. 
And, and, and so with, with all of the knowledge that you have collected and all of the data that you have analyzed, where do we go from here? What, what are the, the best practices that the government and scholars can, can use moving forward to, to make the most efficient use of classification and declassification? Yeah, so the, the good news here is that uh, because, you know, there's so much now, so much information that was born digital in the sense that, you know, these are electronic records, right? Even dating back to the early 1970s, you have the State Department, you know, putting all of its diplomatic cables in electronic databases. What that means is now that these records, at least some of them are starting to get declassified, the ones that survived anyway, um, what you can now do is you can begin doing data science experiments like the ones we're doing at Columbia, and you can begin to make out patterns and anomalies, right? And, and what it is that we don't know. Um, and to me, like, that's the most important thing of all, right? We need to know what we don't know. We need Absolutely. to get some sense of like the dimensions of official secrecy. And we need to know something, right? About at least eventually, um, what is it that our government was most intent on, on concealing? And so in the book, I described the experiments we conducted, trying to find out, for example, you know, who are America's most redacted, right? Mm -hmm. The people whose names are most likely to be redacted from the, the historical record. We also look at like, what are the subjects that tend to uh, get classified and classified at the highest level, right? And also, like, as I mentioned, you know, typically how long does it take before we begin to find out information about this or, or that given topic? And the reason we're doing this, of course, is because we want to create knowledge. We want to discover things. We want to hold our government to account. But we're also trying to demonstrate how this technology could be used by the government itself, you know, to adopt a more rational risk management approach to managing national security information. Because the problem is, you know, not just, you know, that by withholding all this information, they make it impossible for citizens to do their job, <clears throat> but also they sometimes release information that really could get people killed. And so I have examples in the book, you know, things like sniper manuals. Uh, or ways you could, you know, if you're trying to kill everybody in a room, how it is a pair of assassins could wipe out everybody in a room. These are documents that have been released by our government that probably should not have been declassified. So unless we start, yeah, unless we start <laughs> using these data science techniques, this is what we're going to be seeing. We're going to see more and more of it. Well, I'm very thankful that there are projects like yours that are going through and, and analyzing this and figuring out how we can better analyze and keep data moving forward because it's it's only going to become more difficult to keep things secret and we're only going to have more and more data as everything becomes digital and copious. Well, Matthew Connolly, thank you so, so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Shannon. The name of Matthew Connolly's book is The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. And for Cultural Controversy, this is Shannon Fisher. See you next time. Oh, 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 oh,